There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it so people will fear him. Whatever has already been and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. From there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. Surely the fate of humans is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the human, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen to them after? what will happen after them. Well, good morning again, and welcome to White Rock Baptist Church. Uh, we're thrilled you're here with us. Before I dive in to this morning's message, I want to begin by just simply saying thank you. Uh, you may not be aware of everything that takes place behind the scenes to put all of these services together, We've got people leading worship from their homes, their living rooms, or uh, outdoors. We've got people who read scripture, people who kind of get involved in so many different ways. Uh, and it takes a lot to just put everything together. Uh, Trevor in the office does multiple hours worth of work, just putting together a few little clips. And so, firstly, a huge thanks to Trevor, uh, but also a huge thanks to all of our volunteers who throughout this time 
uh, have done so much behind the scenes. And I don't know where we would be without all of you helping, volunteering, serving, uh, and being a part of this. So I hope you would join with me in saying a tremendous thank you uh, to everyone involved in making this possible. Uh, if you're joining with us this morning, uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and let me begin by asking you, when last did you build something? Now, I, I don't mean build from complete scratch. You know, maybe you're a carpenter or you have kind of that sort of skill uh, and you can just kind of create uh, from nothing almost. Uh, no, no. What I mean is when last did you put something together? where you went and bought all the pieces uh, and the box and the instructions and you then got to put it together. For some of you, it might be some Ikea furniture. You know, maybe you needed a bed or a desk or a shelf or whatever. Uh, so you popped off to Ikea uh, and you picked it all up and came home and opened up the box and started putting everything together. Maybe you're a child or, or your child has bought Lego or got Lego for Christmas or for a birthday and they've opened up this box and kind of looked into it and there they are almost like these mini gods going yes I can build uh, and I can create and so they follow the instructions and they find all the pieces and they put them all together and and as we do this as we create or as we build from those instructions I'm always fascinated <clears throat> excuse me I'm always fascinated how every piece is crucial in one way or another. Some parts seem dull and mundane, yet it's those same parts that kind of hide in between everything and they hold the whole project together. And so every part has its place, everything is necessary, it all goes together, uh, and we see some parts, we don't see some other parts, but at the end, we have this functional, or beautiful or fun thing that we've put together and that we've built. You know, as I think about building IKEA furniture uh, or building fun Lego toys, I'm kind of reminded that life is very much like that. We, in a way, are kind of like those products that are being built. And we have these pieces that are kind of put into our lives and some of them we don't like, some of them we do like. Some seem dull and mundane, uh, yet they hold everything together. Some are necessary, well they're all necessary, sorry, uh, but some we like, some we don't like. And, and yet we're kind of put together like this construction. We're put together like this project. And if even as we're put together, the way we interact with life, the way we respond to events and the way we respond to things happening around us uh, or, or to us is often as a result of the previous pieces in our life. You know, last week, as I said, I began this journey and we started in Ecclesiastes chapter one. Uh, and it's this powerful opening statement that the preacher or the collector says as he begins his teaching uh, and right there in verse one verse uh, chapter one verse one he says meaningless meaningless everything is meaningless uh, and really as we journey through chapter one and even a little bit into chapter two 
the writer to the Ecclesiastes, or sorry, the writer of Ecclesiastes, kind of drives home this point. We're all going to die. And that's not meant to be a morbid, depressing thought. It's not meant to kind of you know, rain on our parade and, and make us sort of think like, well, what's the point then? No, there's this tremendous beauty that, yes, we're all going to die. So now that we've got that out the way, let's learn how to live. And I kind of looked at death statistics and even as we consider right now, this COVID pandemic really just impacting the world. So many of us are terrified. We're afraid. We see all these numbers uh, coming at us. But the reality is, even just here in BC, since the beginning, uh, you know, since the first COVID-19 death, the reality is less than 2% of deaths in BC have been as a direct result of COVID-19. Uh, our own uh, Minister of Health and, and top doctor kind of reminded us that every day, 114 people die in BC from all sorts of reasons. And so while this isn't about COVID and, and percentages or anything like that, it's the reminder that you and I cannot escape death. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we put in place, no matter the protections and the securities and the safety nets, they don't ultimately help us. Life will end. And so if life will end, then live. Truly live, knowing it's out of your control. Live with thanksgiving and appreciation. And that's what we looked at last week. Control what you can control. And most often, the only thing you really can control is your response in the middle of a situation or in the middle of an event. Ultimately, rest in God's hands. You know, as I think about that image of resting in God's hands, I was listening to a reading of Jonathan Edwards' uh, well-known sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, don't judge the title. Uh, that sermon was preached in July of 1741 in a small town in Connecticut. If we try and judge it by today's standards, yeah, it's just not going to work. But in the sermon of Edwards's uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, Edwards sought to drive home the point that people need to repent of their sin. Uh, but one of my favorite lines in the middle of this sermon of his, Edward says this, he says, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Now, I know a sermon like that today probably wouldn't get the same traction, probably wouldn't have the same impact. And so that's why I said, don't judge it on today's standards. I'm not about to preach his sermon to you today. His point was that the only reason you and I, or that men and women, were alive was because of the sustaining hand of God, because of the pleasure of God. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to know as well and wants us to remember. You're alive right now by the sustaining hand of God. So stop worrying about death. Stop trying to avoid it because you can't stop it. Live in the joy of being sustained 
by God in both the seemingly good times as well as the bad times. Because you will experience both of those, both good and bad, in this incredible mystery known as life. This enigma called life. Uh, you know, I had a couple of people ask me as I sort of transition, a couple of people asking, well, what resources are you using as you prepare, as you read through and study Ecclesiastes? And there's two books that I'm using. And one of them is in our church library, and it's called Living Life Backward by David Gibson. Uh, just a fantastic conversational commentary, for want of a better term, uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're looking for a book that kind of dives into Ecclesiastes and just gives great handles on how to make sense of it, then I would encourage you, Living Life Backward uh, by David Gibson. And then for those of you who are maybe more academic and you want to have a look at the Hebrew and you, you really want to dive into the text in all its richness, uh, well, then I'm using the Baker Commentary Series uh, on Ecclesiastes written by Craig Bartholomew. Uh, interestingly enough, Living Life Backwards by Gibson refers to that commentary as well in his introduction. And so those are two just fantastic books if you want to dive deeper. But as we go into the chapter and the verses that we've read today, the thoughts that I have and the way I want to process it is to remind us uh, the important thing to note in chapter 3 in this preacher's collection uh, is that it, there are two main parts in chapter 3, but they go together. Uh, up front, the first couple of verses is this beautiful poem uh, and it's this poem that displays the seemingly polar opposites or, or the bookends of our varied experiences through life. Verses 1 to 8 uh, are quite often read at funerals. And you can see why. It's this incredible poem. Um, but the problem is, verse 1 to 8, on their own, as poetry, miss the power of the prose thereafter. So verses 9 to 22 is this prose that complements the poetry and they go together. They help us make sense of one another. So let's consider the poetry and, and let's consider the powerful pattern of this poetry in verses 1 to 8. Really, as the, as the preacher, as this collector speaks to us, there's this reminder that just as the created world has a rhythmic pattern built into it, so too our lives within this world experience their own regularities, their own cadence, their own ebb and flow with the rolling years. You know, that statement in verse 1, uh, there is a time and season, season for everything, is fleshed out in verses 2 to 8. Uh, with an artful literary technique that places polar opposites or extreme positions side by side as a way of embracing everything that lies between them. It's a little bit like saying north and south or east and west. It, it includes everything within them. So when the preacher declares there is a time to be born and a time to die, the whole of life is captured as being something that has a time for its beginning and a time for its end. 
And there's a time for everything else that happens between the decisive moments of start and finish. And of course, the next few verses are the poetic expanding of those normal situations of life. They're not meant to be a logical or scientific explanation of life. The reader or audience would do well not to try and define life or even to try and look for application from those verses. This is poetry. The preacher is symbolically, and I would say skillfully, emphasizing the totality of things that are contained in the human life. So when he says, for instance, in verse 3, there's a time to kill, we don't build a theology on killing people because of that verse. No, the rest of scripture would help us answer and make sense of that question. But what the writer is doing is the writer is reminding us that the normal experience of life includes those sad moments. Perhaps even those moments when our anger, our frustration uh, get the better of us. And and we may even articulate that we want to kill someone. We might chuckle at a a mom who is worn out and kind of in exasperation sort of says, I am going to kill my kids. Of course, we know she doesn't really mean that. We know that's not the case. But even those negative experiences... Even those deep and dark emotions are part of life. And when someone does cross that line and does the unthinkable to another person, well, then there's also a time to heal in the ways that that looks. And the same can be said of weeping and laughing, of mourning and dancing in verse 4. You know, I am reminded of a a gentleman when I was in, in... Pinetown in South Africa, we had this dear saint gentleman uh, who was on his deathbed. And so I was called in as the doctors had kind of said, look, it's a matter of moments, really. And so I rushed to be at this man's deathbed and his family were all around him, uh, wife, children, grandchildren. And I was fascinated, Uh, just blown away how in this sad moment, there was still laughter. As the family shared stories and shared memories of their loved husband, father and grandfather. And so there was laughter. And of course, as he he breathed his last in that moment and, and passed away, so too there were tears and there was weeping. But the fascinating thing is that same family, as they mourned, as they wept, within a few days and weeks, there was laughter and celebration at the joy of new life in in the birth of a grandchild. A little while later, there was joy of a family wedding. And so the same family, experiencing mourning and weeping, also experiences joy and laughter. And we know that to be true. Life has a rhythm of up and down, beginning and end. And we all know this to be true. So why does the preacher then give this poem? David Gibson says this. He says, the preacher is seeking to give us perspective on each of the items in his patterned opposites. While pointing us to the perplexity of this rhythmically ordered arrangement of time, 
Life is full of flaws. Killing, tearing down, weeping, mourning, hating, warring. These are the times of life we will experience that show us in the most painful of ways that we live east of Eden and under the curse. More than this, the fact that there is no chronological sequence or discernible purpose to the order of each of these items is itself part of the preacher's point that we have no control over any of these things. Don't you just love that reminder? We live east of Eden and we have no control over these things. There is a time for everything. We don't arrange them by our stopwatch or by our calendar and by our schedules, yet they happen to all of us. And this is the powerful pattern of this poetry in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 to 8. So how should we make sense of it? Because on its own, it gives no answers, even as it brings comfort. And I think this is the portion of the prose. Verse 9 to 22, there is this comforting challenge in the middle of this prose. You know, this poem of Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1, uh, sorry, 3 verse 1 to 8 is often read at funerals. Even at, at secular or humanist funerals where there's no mention of God, no uh, faith position, uh, it's read because we like the imagery. But you know, as much as I've heard this passage read at a funeral, I've never heard anyone include verse 9 and following. You know, verse 8 ends with the word peace. And yes, it is. And we think, lovely, exactly, we need and we want peace. But then comes verse 9. Verse 9 starts with, what do workers gain from their toil? And you can almost hear the record scratch or that kind of pause moment and, and sort of the say what now? Uh, you know, we've just had this beautiful poetry and, and now all of a sudden there's again this almost cynical question of, well, what do workers gain from all their toil? There's this seemingly harsh question. It's this echo of what's been said all the way through chapter one and chapter two. It's a continuation of how everything is meaningless or mysterious or enigmatic. But then if that's the case, if life it is no more than the secular idea caught in the expression, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Is that really the sum total of everything? No. And the verses that follow comfort us, even as they challenge us in answering this question. Let me think about this idea of comfort for a moment. And maybe the best way to illustrate this is to talk about children. Now, I'm not talking about my children specifically, although, of course, they're included in this illustration. But think about how, if you have ever had young children, uh, children often get frustrated with their parents' decisions, especially when those decisions don't make sense to the child or, or when those decisions curtail their narcissistic existentialism. And what I mean by that is most children yours and mine, don't want to go to bed at a reasonable hour. Most children would try and live off candy if they could. Most children would avoid schoolwork. 
Most children would happily sit in front of the television or in front of a gaming console for hours on end. Now, of course, those things in and of themselves once in a while are not bad things. But should children be left to their own devices and, and choices in these matters? Of course not. And parents know that because parents see a much bigger picture in their children's lives. Parents understand what is good and necessary to help their children mature and grow up. Even those things that the children find painful and that the children do not want to do. You know, most children are completely oblivious to the stresses and the cares and the concerns that their parents carry even as they try and provide for their children. And so while a child typically only considers their wants and their desires in the moment, their parents are thinking of a million other things that both directly and indirectly help their child. So with that illustration in mind, are we not a little bit like children in the presence of God? You see, God does not exist in our time frame. God is the one who sees the beginning from the end. He is able to make everything beautiful in his time, as verse 11 says. And then in verse 14, what he does endures forever. So just like your children and my children do not see the whole picture, neither do you or I see the whole picture. Only God does. Only God who exists outside of time can view and take all these varied elements of life, both good and bad, and use them for something beautiful that endures forever. Part of wisdom, then, is learning to know that we don't know all things. So when we read in verse 11 that God has set eternity in the heart of, uh, of humans, Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We're reminded in that moment, only God can see all things. And so God is not being unkind when he doesn't tell us or doesn't show us in the moment what he could conceivably be doing through it. He simply calls us to trust him in the very same way that we ask our children to trust us. And the preacher makes it crystal clear. Uh, he makes it crystal clear to us that we have a wonderful reason for trusting a timeless God with the times and the seasons of our lives. God is perfectly just. God seeks what has been driven away in verse 15. And that imagery of seeking what has been driven away, it's, it's a shepherding imagery. It's almost like what we read in the New Testament of the shepherd who leaves the 99 behind in search of the one that is lost. So even as the preacher talks in this text and in the next few verses about injustice where there should be justice or wickedness where there should be righteousness, he reminds us that ultimately all is in God's perfect timing. Righteousness and justice will unfold. So you and I will experience unrighteousness. You and I will experience wicked moments because we live east of Eden. 
And you and I may even forget about some of those wicked or unrighteous moments as we age. But God does not. God will retrieve every single injustice and every single time and every single activity Every single deed that has ever broken God's holy law or tarnished his beautiful world or damaged his image bearers, every one of those moments will ultimately be answerable to God. And so there is comfort for those who trust their father. And of course, with the middle of or with that comfort of trust, there comes the challenge. And this is the challenge that the writer is trying to get at. The challenge should affect my daily life and my daily living. You see, knowing that God is outside of time and sees it all and in the end will bring it all under judgment, both the righteous and the wicked, it stops me from needing to be in control all the time. And it stops me from needing to be in control of everything that happens to me and around me. The message of Ecclesiastes is not that life is full of good times and bad times that we cannot control, but the patterning of our lives in this way is part of a bigger pattern that God controls. The point is that I can live within this rhythmic pattern and accept not having all the answers to all my times of pain yet. Yet. And that is the key. Yet, every time of mine, every experience will have its day in court, so to speak. So while I wait, how then should I live? I think Ecclesiastes tells us. It tells us how to learn now and today that there really is a time for everything. Learning now that the season or seasons that I am in and that I will go through will not always be the season of my life. And it can help me prepare for the chapters of life that God is yet to write. It doesn't mean giving up or throwing my hands in the air because the season is difficult or or unwanted. But it might help me not to be taken by surprise. I think many of our frustrations with life is our own blindness to the change of seasons or because we cannot adjust our expectations in the middle of the various seasons. You see, you and I want satisfaction. You and I want joy, comfort, happiness, health, prosperity. We want all these good things for every season and every moment of our life. Yet we know this is not how life works. And we need to learn not to look for satisfaction in the seasons and in the times and in the events. We need to learn to look for satisfaction in God alone. As he builds our lives and as he uses each of those times, each of those experiences to build us into that completed and final product. I started talking about building Ikea products or or Lego toys. You know, when a child is given that Lego toy, they have the sense of, I'm a mini God. I have the power to create. And so I I follow the instructions. But if you've ever watched a child 
put together a Lego toy, or if you've ever watched me try and put together a large IKEA product, there are still a lot of tears and a lot of frustration as pieces get lost or as fingers get hit or as nails break in the middle of trying to pull Lego pieces together. There's these frustrations. And the problem in life for you and I is we want to be mini gods over our own lives as well. We want to build a structure devoid of pain or hardship. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes comforts and challenges us by reminding us this is not the case. So how do I conclude? Well, let me ask the question. What season are you in right now? It's very possible that the season you're in, you would rather not be in. Let me remind you, this season will pass. Those who mourn seldom can see that one day they will dance again. Those who weep don't often realize that a day will come when they will laugh again. Yet those of us who have gone through those experiences know that we will dance and laugh. Even as we know after that will come mourning and weeping again. Gibson says this, living well in God's world means recognizing that when it comes to our own lives, we are not many gods. And this is his creation, not ours. We have all the pieces of our life given to us and things come and things go and seasons change. And it is only God who knows exactly where everything is meant to go in which order and at what time and why. It is only God who knows ultimately why. It is only God who knows ultimately the order because it is ultimately God who is building and doing something, something beautiful, something remarkable, something that will be shown in time. Until then, the preacher would say to us, let us learn to trust our good father and let us leave the results to him. Even as we experience life and death. Mourning and weeping. Joy and dancing. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we go through life, we know life has good moments Life has bad moments. We try and avoid the bad moments as much as possible because they're painful. They lead to mourning. They lead to weeping. They end in death. and we, we want no part of them. But God, as we read your word, as we listen to this writing, as we listen to this collector preach this wisdom, we are reminded that ultimately, God, you are in control and ultimately, God, you are good and you are doing something that we cannot fully see or appreciate. And so we trust you with what you're doing. Amen.